impurity, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I'll pray. God, again, just thank you for the richness of your word, for the clarity of it. Thank you, God, that, that it, in everything you've said, it, it points us back to you and to your will for us, which is always good, acceptable, and perfect. We need your ministry to us, and I ask, Father, that you would, through your word and by your spirit, just speak to our hearts and do that work in us that only you can accomplish. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, um, I felt like I got a little fired up. Um, this is a, a wonderful passage of Scripture. Paul has spent two chapters talking about the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his sovereignty, his sufficiency, and now he's, he's wanting us to see how Christ himself is more more than able for living this Christian life. But when you get all fired up, as I did last week, sometimes it's, it, you think, wow, that was something. And, um, you know, but the emotions fade and, and all you have is, is um, a bunch of froth left over. And I, I think about Peter in Acts chapter 11 after he had gone to Cornelius under the Lord's direction. And Uncommon to Peter when he came back and he had to give a defense of what he had done going and eating with a Gentile. Um, it says that he proceeded to lay out in orderly sequence what had happened. Well, that got everybody's attention because Peter was not very orderly. It would seem in his personality, he was pretty um, impulsive and emotional. And so I'm going to try to be more orderly in going through this passage of Scripture this morning because it's a very, very important passage of Scripture. Again, as I've been, been saying and maybe sounding a bit like a broken record by this time, um, the whole point here is that if Jesus Christ is who He is, then there's nothing more to the Christian life than trusting Him. That Christ is the Christian life. 
He has not given us anywhere in the Bible a, a, a 12-step program or a 5-step or a 3-step. There is no methods. There is no program. There is no procedure. It is simply faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Um, and sometimes, I think oftentimes, as, as Christians, we are not comfortable with that. We're looking for a how-to list. And give me the list of what to do, and I'm good. I'm a, I'm a list maker. And, um, and, I, and, you know, and I seldom you know, buy something that needs to be assembled without looking at the instructions of how to do it. Um, and, but we, we, that, that is religion. And we have not been called to a religion which gives us process and mechanics. But we have been called to the person of Jesus Christ and to place our faith in him. So it is not mechanical. It is relational. It is not a religion. It is a relationship. Before we, we delve into this section, if you just would, would flip back to Romans chapter 7. And again, Paul writing here, um, puts his finger right on what the real issue is for us. And in this second half of Romans 7, where he's talking about the frustration of sin seeming to always win, Paul says, what do I do? Verse 19, the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. What do you do? Now he's being honest here. I'm doing the very thing I do not wish to do. Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. What do you do? See, again, this is the reality here. It's not just that I have a struggle with whatever you want to, whatever struggle it may be, with being irritable or being negative or, or being whatever. That is not our struggle. Those are things that are manageable. Irritability, depression, you know, we, we always want to, to reduce our struggles to something that is manageable that we can get our hands on and we can find a process for addressing it. But if my struggle is against evil and there is evil in me, there's no process. There's no 12 steps. There's no, there's no mechanical system that I can go to to overcome evil. Evil is bigger than me it is supernatural. It, 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 it is something that I cannot face in my own strength. And so that's why, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Not what will set me free. Who will set me free? If my problem is with evil, there is evil in me and sin is evil then there is no what that will set me free. It is only a who. And that's what he's getting at here in Colossians chapter 3. So I've gone through in my Bible and I've highlighted the verbs. Beginning in, um, in verse 5, consider. We saw last week it's the same verb for reckon. Reckon this to be true. In verse 8, put them all aside. Verse 9, do not. Verse 12, put on. Verse 14, put on. Verse 15, let. Verse 16, let. And verse 17, do. 
So you look at all these verbs here, and the vast majority of them here, it's about what Christ has to do. We reckon the members of our body dead because they're dead. How did that happen? I was crucified with Christ when I placed my faith in him. Reckon it so. Put them all aside. We'll get to that again. It's, just, it's not struggle with it. It, it. It's just put it aside. Drop it. Stop lying to one another. How do you do that? Again, there's no process given. No, 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 no three, four steps. Just stop it. Put on, verse 12, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. How do you, what is that? It's putting on Christ. Put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ richly. This is allowing these things to take place. So all of this is coming back to a relationship. Not a process. Not mechanics. A relationship that we live with Christ in response to who he is and what he is able to do. So, consider the members of your body, verse 5, your earthly body as dead. We were crucified with Christ. I don't put these things to death. I can't put myself to death. But I have been put to death with Christ, and I can consider my body, my humanity, as dead to these things. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. We saw last week all of those probably in reference to sexual sin. These are sins of passion, and they actually, in one way or another, relate to idolatry, which amounts to idolatry. They deserve the wrath of God. Verse 6, it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. We're living in a crazy time. We're redefining everything. And this is not new. started in the Garden of Eden. When God said the knowledge of the tree... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it. It is not good for you. That's what he was saying. It is not good for you. If you eat of it, you will die. So what did Eve do? She looked at it. She goes, it looks good to me. And that's where it started, where we began to redefine sin. And we've been doing it ever since. God is the one who defines sin. And God says these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed amount to idolatry. And God says they warrant his wrath. It's not up to me to define sin. And I certainly can't redefine it. God defines what is sin. And God has said these things deserve his wrath. He's not saying that the Christian is going to experience the wrath of God. That is not his point here. But his point is How can we countenance, how can we tolerate what deserves God's wrath? Crazy time that we're living in. We all know it's not just that we we turn a blind eye to these things, but that we actually affirm them. Cannot affirm what God condemns. This is not about being tolerant. This is about just simply agreeing with God. These, are in, these things are all indicative of what we once did. Verse 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. 
In other words, these things are not who you are. They once were true of you. They are no longer true of you because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. So anytime a Christian is guilty of any of the things listed in verse 5, that is not who that person is. And it needs to stop. And it stops by considering the members of your earthly body as dead to these things. This is not what God has made me for. This is not what I, what, why he lives in me. And so we turn to him considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. Just put them aside. Again, there's no process. There's no mention of struggle. It's just put it aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. It seems too simplistic. We all know that scientists are telling us now that when a person persists in any behavior over a length of time, it changes the structure of the brain. And apparently there are are actual physiological changes to the brain that take place that can be seen under under imagery, brain scanning imagery, that one brain looks different than another because of the continual habitual decisions that are being made. I don't doubt that. And God, who made the brain, is telling us in these passages, stop. He doesn't say, I understand that as you have persisted in your sin, you have rewired your brain. And that it's going to take maybe months, maybe years, maybe decades before you're no longer struggling with this. Now, all that may be true. But he's saying, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to these things. Put these things aside. Now, maybe that has to be done what feels like a thousand times a day. Well, then do it a thousand times a day. But there's no answer that the scripture gives us other than just to come to Jesus, reckon on the truth, and say, Jesus, I am not sufficient for this. Only you are. You are the all-sufficient God. I am placing my life in your hands. You know what's been happening to my brain. You know what I've done to myself. My only answer is in you. This is not just about a brain that needs to be rewired. This is about evil that is in me. And the only way to combat evil is with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Who will deliver me? Should we meditate on Scripture? Absolutely. Should we memorize Scripture? Absolutely. But unless God does this, there's no freedom. Reckon your members of your body to dead and as dead to sin and put these things aside. Anger and wrath are characteristics of God attributes of God. God gets angry and God demonstrates his wrath. Paul's already made mention of the wrath of God in verse 6. So these are really hard because we want to justify our anger and our wrath as being righteous anger, righteous wrath. Most of the time it's not. And God is, in his being truth, will always show us when it's not. But I find most of the time in my life when I think it's righteous indignation, God shows me that it's not. Malice, slander, and abusive speech are never 
true of God. Never. So if I, one of the ways I know that my anger and my wrath are not righteous anger, not God's wrath, is when it spills over to malice, slander, and abusive speech. That is never characteristic of God. Never. There's no place for it in the Christian life. So when Paul says, put them aside, this is obviously possible, or he wouldn't be saying it. And it is only possible in Christ. Sometimes, perhaps more than we recognize, we need to have, have help in prayer. And we need to ask for the body of Christ to pray for us, to humble ourselves and to say, I'm really struggling here. Would you pray for me? I'm having a real hard time laying aside sexual sin. My heart's eaten up with anger and bitterness. And we do need to have the body of Christ praying for us. Do not lie to one another. Again, never true of God. Never true of God. God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. And so when a lie comes out of one of our mouths, it is not God speaking. Stop it. Do not lie to one another. Since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. When did you lay aside the old self? When you received Christ. That's the moment that you became a new creature. So you are not what you were. All of these things were indicative of the unsaved, the unregenerate. But we are regenerate. We've been saved. The old self has been laid aside. Verse 10, and you have put on the new self. That happened again the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus. You went from being an old man to a new man, a new creature in Christ Jesus. So once and done thing can never be done again. That new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The new self is your new spiritual identity, the new creature, the new man that God creates when you place your faith in Christ. That new person grows and is being transformed into the likeness of Christ, being brought into conformity to him. This is why we know he's not talking about a new nature or an old nature. Some people read this passage and read old nature, new nature. Old nature has been laid aside. New nature has been put on. That is not the case. We know that because the new nature will never be renewed. It doesn't need to be renewed. It is the very nature of God himself. It can't change. What changes is you and I. We are brought into greater and greater likeness with Jesus as we come to him and trust in him throughout this life. We are brought into conformity to him. And it's his work. This new self is being renewed. We don't do the renewal. The Spirit of God does the renewal. The Spirit of God causes the growth, causes the transformation as we present ourselves to him. He does this work. And that work that he does... He does without distinction, without regard, verse 11, 
to any kind of, of worldly class of humanity, Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, apparently the Scythian was the worst of the barbarians, slave and free man, doesn't matter. Christ is all. What does that make reference to? His sufficiency. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is powerful. Christ is all and in all. Doesn't mean that he's in every single person who's living today. This is not universalism. But he is in every single Christian equally. No Christian has more of Jesus than another Christian. He is in every Christian. And he is the the one who is sufficient and the only one who is sufficient for this life. I love these short, crisp statements that Paul gives. Christ is our life, earlier in the chapter. Christ is all, and he is in all. This is the Christian life. It's pretty simple. A woman walked up to Major Ian Thomas one time at a conference that he was speaking at up in Mole Ranch, not far from here. And it was in the dining room, and he was sitting at the table minding his own business with a few other people, and this woman walked across the dining room and, and loudly in front of everybody, she just got in his face and says, the Christian life doesn't work. I've tried it and it doesn't work. Who does that? Christian conference. Just comes over to his table and starts yelling at him like that. And Major just, you know, fork up in the area, puts the fork down and he looks at her and he says, and it never did work. And it never will work. Because it's not an it. That's your problem. We have not been called to an it, but to Jesus Christ himself. And he was saying to this woman, woman, that's your problem. You're trying to, you think it's an it when it's a person, Christ. And consistently, always, this is what Paul is bringing us back to, is the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is all. There isn't a book you can read There isn't a methodology. There's not a film series that you can read. You know, I I tell you, I I, I was looking at World Magazine this week, and right in front of the front page, the whole full-page article there about this DVD series that you can buy to overcome pornography. And and I have no doubt that it's a great series. I'm, I'm... I'm, I'm interested in buying it and, 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 and just seeing what these people have to say. And just reading this full-page advertisement, it's all about how, again, we have changed our brains through pornography, and the, and the, and the porn-addicted brain looks like a cocaine-addicted brain is what they're saying. And so, and so uh, just le- reading the article, the advertisement, it's clear. They say there's a process that you have to go through to rework your brain. I have no doubt that we've done damage to our brains just as we've done damage to our bodies. But I don't see Scripture saying anywhere that there's a process that you have to go through. It's always and only Jesus. Come to Jesus. Christ is all. And he is in all. That's simple. But it's not simplistic. Verse 12, and so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. 
shouldn't be controversial at all what he just said. But every time we see the word chosen, we're told that that has to do with election. And specifically, elected to salvation. I, I read quite a few authors on this subject, and, um, and there's, there is one side of this debate that would go so far as to say, when you examine carefully the use of the word elect or chosen in the New Testament, there is not a single reference to salvation. Not single one. And I've read that book. And I think the authors are onto something. I don't know that I can agree with you know, all of everything they're saying, but I lean, and after having read the book and worked through every single use of chosen, elect, in the Bible, I think they're onto something. Jesus was called the elect, chosen. Israel was chosen, not all saved. Jesus didn't need to be saved. Angels are called chosen. They don't need to be saved. Judas was chosen of Jesus, and he wasn't saved. And you can go on and on and on. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and we looked at this a couple years ago, it says he chose us in him. It does not say he chose us to be in him. It says we are cho- he chose us in him, and then the to be verb, that we should be holy and blameless. I think Paul's saying the same thing here in Colossians 3. The choice is to be holy and blameless. You're saved. And if you're saved, God has a will for you. Be holy and blameless. And in Colossians 3.12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and blameless. Sounds a whole lot like Ephesians 1.4 to me. We have been chosen by God to be holy and here beloved. This is God's calling upon our lives. It's not to be defeated by sin. It's not to always be living in that Romans 7, but understanding the who of the Christian life. And that we can be what we have become, holy and beloved of God. Put on a heart, not just the deeds of compassion, but the heart of compassion. God's always looking at the heart. I can act compassionate. I remember being in seminary, and we had those pastoral ministry classes, and excellent classes, very, very helpful. And one student asked a prof one time, what, how do you do this? How do you go down to a hospital and visit people and, and act compassionately? How do you, and he says, well, you fake it. You sit down with them, and you hold their hand, And you pray with them, and you read the scripture with them, and you act like it, even if you don't feel like it. Well, there's some value in that. We shouldn't just let our emotions rule us. Choose compassion, is what he was saying. Amen. But this is more than choosing compassion. It's a heart of compassion. Now, that, again, is impossible apart from Jesus. Try to get somebody to change their heart. Try to change your own heart. But he says, put it on. And what you're putting on is Christ. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. 
put it on. Just put it on. This isn't natural. That's the point. It is supernatural. It brings us back again to the person of Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. We clothe ourselves with Christ. Now I want to take, again, I'm, I'm trying to be orderly and sequential here and maybe a little too deliberate, I hope not. But I want to just pause here on this last part of verse 13. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. If there's any one area where we all in our humanity struggle is with the area of forgiveness. I've come to think it's because we've been made in the image of God. In being made in the image of God, we intrinsically value justice. Which is why the Pledge of Allegiance doesn't say mercy for all, it says what? Justice for all. Nobody wants to live in a country where mercy is for everyone. That would be chaos. There'd be no justice. But if we live in a country where there was justice for all, then you can give mercy. But you have to have justice before you can have mercy. If it's mercy for all, there is no justice. Justice for all. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. We know evil should be punished and good should be rewarded. That is the most basic definition of justice. Evil is punished, good is rewarded. It is intrinsic to our humanity. It's part of our DNA. You don't have to teach a person that justice needs to happen always. Well, if that's the case, you can understand, begin to get an idea of why forgiveness is so hard. Because justice and forgiveness seem to be butting heads with each other all the time. Because something in us says there must be justice. And there must be. But then there's forgiveness. So why is God calling us to forgiveness when he has put this this strong passion and desire in us for justice? God, are you just mocking us? Forgive, but justice. You put this sense of justice in me. And I'm supposed to forgive? Where's the justice? And we're torn inside ourselves. So what do you do? I've spent a lot of time in my 62 years, thinking about this and struggling with it. How have we been forgiven? Well, the easy part, the part that we love to embrace, is we, by the grace of God. Amen. We've been, been forgiven fully by the grace of God. There is no sin that we are guilty of that Christ has not paid for. So our forgiveness that God extends to us is free and it is full. Amen. I'm still having a hard time forgiving you. (laughs) You have a hard time forgiving me. How does this work out? Well, there's a third aspect to how he has forgiven us. See, God doesn't just wave a magic wand and ignore justice. He forgives us because justice has been satisfied. We are forgiven freely and fully because justice is satisfied. He cannot forgive us unless justice is satisfied. And justice has been satisfied because Jesus died for our sins. Therefore, I am forgiven freely 
and fully. Now, how does this relate to my forgiving of another person? There's nothing that anybody has done to me, no sin that I have been the victim of that Jesus hasn't paid for. He paid for all sin. And I forgive as I have been forgiven. If God is asking me to forgive by bypassing justice, then he's asking me to do something that he himself does not do. And that's impossible. And that, I believe, in my case at least, is what's made forgiveness so difficult. Impossible. Is because I'm thinking that God wants me to do something that he himself doesn't do. To forgive without demanding justice. But what I have to realize is the justice that I demand has already been fulfilled on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so who am I to demand more than God requires? So now you can begin to see how pride is at the root of of refusing to forgive, requiring an apology before I forgive. Show me that in Scripture. Scripture says that while they were pounding the nails into Jesus' hands, he was saying, Father, forgive them. And nobody was asking for forgiveness. There is no precondition to forgiveness other than the sin has been paid for and Christ has paid for the sin. So I forgive because the sin that I have been victimized by has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. And who am I not to forgive what Christ has already paid for? I forgive on the basis of justice. I am not God, and I do not have the right to refuse to forgive what God has already forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that person's going to go to heaven because the forgiveness of Jesus has to be received. But everything that needs to be done has already been taken place. We receive on the basis of what Christ has done, it is accomplished. The forgiveness has taken place. Will I take it? In a court of law, I've been told, the lawyer among us could correct me, if you were given a presidential pardon for what you've done, the government cannot throw you out of prison. You will sit in prison even if you've been pardoned until the pardon is received. And this has actually been tested in court. There was an individual who was, who was given a pardon, and he says, I will not accept the pardon. And so the courts decided that he must stay in jail. Pardon is there. You can walk up to any person on the street and say, your sin has been paid for, and you are forgiven. But it is a gift that must be received. And until you receive it, then it is not applied to you. This is what I think Paul's getting at. Otherwise, if this is not what he's saying, forgive as you've been forgiven, and I've been forgiven freely and fully on the basis of the justice that has been met through Christ's death and payment for my sin. If I am not forgiving others as I've been forgiven, then Christ is asking me to do something that he himself does not do. 
and to forgive and just setting justice aside. Personally, this has been a great um, experience of freedom for me. To come back to Christ and who he is and what he has done and simply be in agreement with him. Put on love, the perfect bond of unity. Put it on. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ richly dwell among you. Let means let it happen. So if it's not happening, if the peace of Christ is not ruling in our hearts, we're not letting it. We're doing something to stop the peace of God. If the word of God is not richly dwelling among us, it's not because of Christ. It's because of us. I'm doing something to stop what he is wanting to do. Bernard Briscoe used to be one of the teachers at His Hill and was involved with the torchbearers for a long time. He had a great illustration about stopping the grace of God. That's what I'm talking about here. This is the active movement of God in the body of Christ and in the individual believer is toward peace and is toward the word of God richly dwelling among us. This is what the Spirit is doing. So if I am not being controlled by the peace of Christ, it's because I am doing something to stop the movement of the Spirit. If the word of God is not richly dwelling in my heart, it's because I am doing something to stop the movement of the Spirit. Because this is what he's doing. So Bernard Briscoe's people would walk up to him, he had a full beard, and they'd say, how long have you had your beard? And he says, three inches. And they said, no, I'm not asking you how, the length of your beard and how long you've had it. I'm asking how long you've had a beard. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I guess I've had it about, um, when did I hit puberty? I guess about, you know, 38 years. And he goes, no, no, you had a beard at 12 years old? Well, that's when my beard started growing. Well, no, no. And he, oh, I know what you're asking me. When did I stop stopping my beard. Because every man has a beard. He just may be, he may be stopping it by shaving every day, right? And every day when I shave, I am stopping my beard. So you want to know, when did I stop stopping my beard? <laughs> you see the illustration, see? As long as I'm not stopping the activity of God, as long as I'm not stopping the grace of God, God's grace will be operating. And so I don't have to pray for Christ's activity here. It's stop stopping his activity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. This is the movement of God's spirit within me. Stop it. Stop stopping. What God is doing is what he's saying. And again, it, it's, there's no program. There's no mechanics here. It's just stop stopping what the Spirit's wanting to do. And the Spirit is always going to be moving us toward the peace of Christ. Always moving us toward 
the word of God. So again, when when a church is no longer characterized by the peace of Christ, but we're anxious and we're determined and we've got our visions and this and that, and we've got our, we've got our fundraising campaigns. You're going, where is the peace? Why is there so much effort and striving? And where is the peace? When a church is characterized by, by all kinds of programs and sounds and sights and movement, but it's not characterized by the word of God richly dwelling among us, we're stopping the Spirit of God. We can stop the Spirit of God among us and in us individually. And we know we're doing so when the peace of Christ and the word of Christ are not characterizing us. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? getting in their face and just beating on their heads until they get it. No. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's the opposite of a spiritual song? Carnal. Major Thomas used to call them soulish. Where that music, that song, the lyrics of it, are, the emotions of it are appealing to the soul but they do nothing to appeal to the Spirit. I know that that Todd, he is ambitious every week, week after week, to lead us to the person of Jesus Christ. And I appreciate that with his song selection. He's not trying to make make it be emotional. That is not his endeavor. We've sat down, we have lunch periodically, we talk about these things, and he is clear it's not about trying to drum up an emotion, but he wants our spirits to be led by the Spirit of God to the person of Jesus Christ. That's spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, and once again, for the third time in this passage, in your hearts, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that doesn't mean just do it for his name, but do it in Christ, from Christ, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is what the Christian life is. Christian life is Jesus. And coming to him, trusting in him, appropriating Christ, putting him on, reckoning on him, letting him rule. It's not complicated. It's very simple. And tragically, we don't like the symbol because it puts it all in the hands of Jesus. And our role is to believe him, to appropriate him, to believe him. God, you have to do this. And I'll finish where I started. As long as I think, as long as you think that the problems that we have are things that can be managed we are only going to experience defeat. We need to understand that the problems we have have as their root evil. And the only one who is sufficient for evil is Jesus Christ. I'll close this in prayer. I do thank you, God, for your word.
for laying things out for us clearly, simply, and in all of it bringing us back to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that increasingly our trust and our dependence would be on him. And that when we are at our wit's end, that we will cry out, as Paul did, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not what, but who. And our answer, we know, is only in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you are and that you are available to us. Christ is all, and he is in all. And we thank you, God, that you are in each of us. In Christ's name, amen.